Like David said this morning, we have a double portion, Akrigmo and Kedushim. So we'll talk a little bit about Yom Kippur this morning and the importance of Torah for everyone. Um, through the yearly cycle, we find ourselves right in the middle of Torah, essentially. This is the heart of it. And the unfortunate thing is that for most of, in a general sense, um, for the most part, the last 2,000 years, um, this is probably the least studied section, at least among those followers of Yeshua. You know, they, they traditionally have focused on other parts of Scripture. There just hasn't been the proper appreciation for Torah, especially this uh, section, the heart of Leviticus. As much of the instruction that we find here are labeled as ceremonial and subsequently dismissed. And so I was poking around articles, blogs this week, just trying to find some encouragement to help us, uh, you know, shore up that appreciation for um, Leviticus. I ended up on um, reading an article by a man, his name is J.K. McKee, M-C-K-E-E. He runs a uh, website called messianicapologetics.net. I've quoted from him before. He's written dozens of books. I own about four or five of them, commentaries on um, different books of the Bible. He has a very vast website. He actually goes to a Messianic Jewish congregation in Texas called Atzkaim, Tree of Life. Tree of Life's very popular name for, for synagogues. And he was, I was reading an article on him uh, that he wrote on apostasy because that's just something that I think about from time to time. Um, of course, when one thinks about apostasy, one's reminded of the passage from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, right? Where it tells us the day of the Lord will not come before uh, apostasy and the man of lawlessness has, has come first. So I often ponder apostasy. I mean, it worries me a little bit. I mean, when you think about it, these people were believers, right? And... Uh, they believed, they thought they had the spirit in them and working in their lives, so how could they fall away? And could that happen to me? Apostasy and rebellion. Of course, these are problems that have been around for as long as humans have walked the earth. Well, I get this. But still, I wonder. In his article um, that I was reading, McKee directs the reader to Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. That's a fun section to read. So how about we start off there this morning? It's on page 818, 818 in uh, most of the Bibles that you have out there. The Tree of Life version. Um, if you have uh, one of these, a family edition, it's on page 940. Uh, this is some fun, fun sections to read right in here. I'm just going to read a few verses here. Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. We're talking about the different beasts here, of course. Um, Daniel 7, 23. Thus he explained the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth that would be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and trample it and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. Another will arise after them, but he will be different from the previous ones. He will subdue the three kings. 
He will speak words against the Most High, and he will continually harass the Kedushim, the Holy Ones of the Most High, and will try to change the appointed times and law. The Kedushim will be handed over for a time, uh, times and half a time, but the court will sit and he will be stripped of his power to be destroyed and abolished for all time. Then the kingdom, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under all heaven will be given to the people of the Kedushim of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey him. Now, surely many Bible interpreters and expositors provide a large amount of analysis regarding the apocalyptic implications of these passages. And many suggest some entertaining possibilities for the identity of the various kings and horns and beasts involved. I'm sure when you think about the man of lawlessness, everyone here could probably come up with some good guesses. But McKee notes that the type of lawlessness inaugurated by the anti-Messiah will be a complete dismissal of our father's high standard of morality and ethics. The Bible is going to be attacked. We read that right here um, when it talks about changing the appointed times and law. You know, the very scriptures are going to be attacked. And this is something that's not going to happen all at once, perhaps. Perhaps it's a slow and gradual process, a slow boil. It starts with um, speech and worldly views that change, and these changes find themselves opposed to biblical views here and there. Maybe it's a slower thing to try to entrap many. So many fall victim to apostasy, but not everyone. I expect those with a firm foundation in Torah will be best positioned to avoid apostasy. Torah, of course, is the foundation, not just for the rest of Scripture, but how we orient our lives. This week's Torah portion offers us some hope and encouragement to help us along the way. Um, So let's jump into this week's Torah portion a little bit. I just want to, I'm going to start mainly in Leviticus chapter 16 is where we'll be this morning. We'll talk a little bit about Yom Kippur and then circle back to the importance of Scripture and not letting, uh, not letting it getting watered down at all. Parshat Akrimot, um, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1 says, Then Adonai spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they approached the presence of Adonai and died. And Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come just any time into the holiest place behind the curtain before the atonement cover, uh, which is on the ark, so that he would not die, for I will be appearing in the cloud over the atonement cover. So right here, Adonai is teaching us holiness. We are not holy. He is. There can be worship and fellowship, but there's process involved. People need to know to respect the boundaries. Know whom it is before you stand, right? Daliftain yama omed. Very important. Continuing on. In this way shall Aaron come into the sanctuary with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the holy linen garment, have the linen garments on his body, and put on the linen sash and wear the linen turban. They are holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Then he is to take from the congregation of B'nai Yisrael 
two he goats for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. Then Aaron is to offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself and make atonement for himself and his house. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before Adonai at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Aaron will cast lots for the two goats, one for Adonai, the other for the scapegoat. Adonai is to present the goat on which the lot for Adonai fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat upon which the lot for the scapegoat fell is to be presented alive before Adonai to make atonement upon it by sending it away as the scapegoat into the wilderness. One can be, uh, begin to see um, the symbolism here of what's going on, especially with the two goats. The past couple of weeks we've been talking about the cleansing of the leper, something very similar there. Uh, there they use two birds. One bird is set free, the other one killed, just like what we have here. One goat killed, one goat set free. As disciples of Yeshua, we can see another parallel there, where at one point near the end of his life, Yeshua was held with Barabbas, and Pilate gave the people an option, I'm going to set one free, and another's going to be put to death. And that happened again there. There's so many parallels in Torah between it just keeps happening over and over. We read in um, that Yeshua's side was pierced when he was on the cross. And what came out? Water and blood. Well, when you think about the leper cleansing with the two birds, there is a bowl of water. And one bird, the one that gets killed, the blood gets put in the water. And the other bird, it's blood and water that cleanses the leper. I mean, there's so many of these uh, parallels that are all through here. That's why studying Torah is such a vital thing. You get to see these if you're really into it and you're interested in what you're reading in here. Jewish tradition states that the Kohanim followed the goat out and pushed it off a cliff, citing Tractate Yoma 6. This actually makes sense in a practical sense because the goat is most likely going to wander back and the symbolism of their sins, that imagery is probably something very unsettling to them. Brings up an inter interesting problem because the Torah does not say ensure a good life for the goat, and the Torah doesn't say you can't kill the goat. Surely you don't want that thing coming back. One can contemplate a deeper lesson here. Even though our sins are atoned for or covered, those sins are sent off, but they find a way to wander back and creep into one's life like the goat wandering back into the camp. We as humans keep on sinning even though we know better. Sin just has a way of wandering back at us, so to speak. And so we long for the day when Yeshua returns and there will be no more returning of those annoying sins because they aren't just covered, they're taken away. More parallels that you can just extrapolate out of here. At least with the Yom Kippur ritual, the slate is clean for another year. The people pile up sins over the next 12 months. It all happens again. The Yom Kippur ritual and all these other things are, uh, that we read about and these two parshas are very good things. It's a yearly reminder of his holiness and how us as created beings need cleansing. This teaches the people that their humanity is something that continually stains the spiritual fabric of the holy sanctuary. 
teaches us about the holiness of God, reminds us we need to be careful around him. Yom Kippur is one of the many Moedim that establish a rhythm of life in the people. This is a very good thing. Although, unfortunately, like I talked about earlier, it's commonly taught that these laws are either obsolete or they're no longer efficacious. Um, I read lots of commentary. My NASB Life Application Study Bible had commentary on this. I was a little disappointed. They start by saying um, sacrifices were made and blood was shed so that the people's sins could be covered until Christ's sacrifice on the cross would give the people opportunity to have their sins removed forever. So it's kind of like they're taking a couple different um, things going on there and making an assumption that we don't read about actually in scripture. And then it goes on to say that Jesus Christ's death replaced this system once and for all. Again, I would have to respectfully disagree, but that sort of language is embedded all over in the commentary. Now, I'm not trying to kick these fine folks out of the kingdom, but I do disagree wholeheartedly. We've read through Hebrews a couple times the past few months, um, it shows us that there is an earthly tabernacle and priesthood and a heavenly tabernacle and priesthood. And these two are not in opposition to each other. But the commentary sure makes it sound like they are. Well, we're still on this earth and subject to that framework until the kingdom is established. It's about earthly and heavenly. It's about now and what's coming. Continue reading a little bit here. Jump down to verse 29. Oh, so this is Leviticus 16.29. He's summarizing this whole thing up, and it says, It is to be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to afflict your souls and do no kind of work, both the native-born and the outsider dwelling among you. For on this day atonement will be made to you to cleanse you. From all your sins you will be clean before Adonai. It is a Shabbat of solemn rest to you, and you are to afflict your souls it is a statute forever. The Kohen who was anointed and who was consecrated to be Kohen in his father's place will make the atonement and put on the linen garments and the holy garments. He is to make atonement for the holy sanctuary, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, for the Kohenim, and for all the people of the assembly. This will be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for B'nai Yisrael once in the year because of all their sins. It was done as Adonai had commanded Moses. It keeps repeating forever here. And how can it be forever if these things were replaced by Messiah? How do you resolve those kind of two ideas? Well, unfortunately, the commentary really didn't have anything on that. Um, but people teach this. They write these things in the commentary. They're doing the best they can. It's likely that they've probably never even heard an argument to the contrary. They're simply responding to the amount of revelation God has given to them. I want to be very charitable to the folks that produce this stuff. That said, the unfortunate result is that they create a dichotomy that's not really there. And the average reader, when they read that commentary, they lose a, a little bit of appreciation for the very foundation of faith that was shared by Yeshua and the early believers. And so that commentary is a very common thing. The Torah tells us over and over that these are eternal statutes. It really means it. 
when you have a worldview that embraces that truth, you're much less likely to be swayed by worldly ideas. But the world, what does it do? It picks away at scripture, different theologies and doctrines pick away at things. They say certain laws are no longer in effect or they're ceremonial laws or it was a cultural thing. They didn't really understand. You know, we know better, right? And that sets the stage for a falling away. Yeshua warns that, warns us in Matthew 24. He says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will rise up and show great signs and wonders to lead you astray, if possible, even the chosen. So, when people are, when you're used to diluting God's word to fit a popular view, it's not a big stretch to think being led astray is impossible. You know, we're not into uh, diluting God's word here or views on any of this. We want maximum strength Torah, right? That's what keeps it close. And so resolving sometimes that uh, those difficulties in the commentary is not easily done. Even arguing about it typically isn't that fruitful because you're really talking about two worldviews that are very different. We view the Torah much, much differently than they handle it, and it's much, uh, it's much more than just arguing over a couple different verses or commentaries. It's really a whole worldview shift that is uh, difficult for people to absorb and engage with. But that's the revelation we've been given, and so what do we do? We, uh, we hold close to this Torah and we study it because it orients us towards Adonai. We see Messiah all through it, and it encourages us in our walk. I would like to close with some words of encouragement for the Psalms. I've been doing this a little bit lately, selecting a different uh, section of Psalm 119. I'd like to read for you um, Psalm 119, verse hey, 33, I'll begin. It's on... I don't have a page number for you. David, it's on page 791 in your Bible. So it's probably about 100 pages less than this other one. Psalm 119, just... Oh, it's too long to read up here, just straight through. So I've been enjoying um, 694 and all the other Bibles. I'm enjoying, as I read through, they're just trying to pull something out that really... Uh, just sort of speaks to me and helps encourage me. That's all very Torah positive stuff. I don't know how you can get through Psalm 119 and not have just wanting to get into that word. Psalm 119.33 says, Teach me the way of your decrees, Adonai, and I will follow them to the end. No falling away, no apostasy. It says, Teach me the way of your decrees, Adonai, and I will follow them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your Torah and observe it with all my heart, with all my mind. Help me walk in the path of your mitzvot, for I delight in it. Turn my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn my eyes away from gazing at vanity, but revive me in your ways. Fulfill your word to your servant, which leads to reverence for you. Make the disgrace I dread pass away, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me by your righteousness. And Yeshua 
when he brings the kingdom, is going to do just that, we will be revived through his righteousness. This is our hope. This is our expectation. And having a firm biblical, biblical worldview will help us keep it towards, oriented towards Adonai and the coming kingdom. In the times we live today, we experience difficulties on many different levels. The spiritual war is ever-present, right? But no worries for us. We can rest. We can have peace, knowing that Messiah will prevail. He's there in the heavenly tabernacle right now. He's caring for our souls and preparing the way for our eternal destiny. We have peace knowing his spirit is within us, encouraging us in the keeping of all of his word. So may the spirit strengthen our resolve in this world while we await his return. Shabbat shalom.